If you have your Bibles, open them up to Jonah chapter 4. We're in a series called Summer Blockbusters. Today we're looking at the fourth and final chapter. And what we see is that Jonah, our prophet, he has a disease. And it's a disease that most religious people have. And in this final chapter, you're going to see the effects of that disease. In fact, you'll probably see some of these symptoms in your own life. Now, if you don't consider yourself religious, I will still suggest that you'll see these symptoms of disease in your life because at the end of the day, people, whether or not they're religious, are made of the same stuff. People have asked me before, Joel, when you're preaching, are you preaching to seekers or are you preaching to save people? And my answer is I'm preaching to sinners. All of us. Religious or not, our sinners were either saved dealing with the effects of remaining sin or, or we're, we're sinners who have not accepted the grace of, of, of Christ in our lives and, and we're feeling the, the consequences and the effects of being separated by God because of our sin. Now, if you remember the story of Jonah, remember chapter 1, God told Jonah to go. So go to Nineveh and Jonah doesn't want to go. Jonah hates the Ninevites and so he gets on a ship bound for Tarshish. A violent storm arises on the sea, and so he is thrown off of the, the, the boat. The storm ceases. A, a giant fish comes and, and swallows Jonah, and he's in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. And, and the fish gets sick of Jonah, literally, and spits him out onto the, onto the beach. And then Jonah finally kind of gets sense, and, and he kind of gets his marching orders. He goes into Nineveh, and he preaches that, that eight-word message, 40 more days, and, and Nineveh will be overthrown. He's not passionate about the message, but, but God uses that message, and the Ninevites repent. God relents of his, of his wrath and shows mercy to the Ninevites. Well, Jonah doesn't like it, and here in, in, in chapter 4, verse 1, this is where it begins. It says, but to Jonah this seemed very wrong, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord, isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? This is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. Do you hear that? Jonah is still justifying himself. He may have consented to obey God because he knows that you can't fight against God and win, but in his heart, he still disagrees. It's like external obedience. It's when you're pressured to conform to a certain behavior, but your heart's not in it. It's like if I had a metal bar up here, and if I had this metal bar, and I didn't first heat it in the middle, to, to, to melt it, and, and I bent that metal bar, what would happen is one of two things. I would bend it to a certain place, and if I let go, it would snap back into its original position, or it would break. And what you see is that Jonah has consented because of the pressure of being in the belly of the whale, but as soon as those pressures are gone, he snaps back into his original attitude, his original heart position, and he's justifying himself. He's expressing hatred toward the Ninevites. So Jonah's behavior may have conformed to what God wanted, but his heart is still unmelted. And that's why I've called it the difference between Christianity 1.0 and 2.0. Some of you are at 1.0 because you know that you can't fight against God and win, but remember, God is not just after obedience. God is after a whole new kind of obedience. The kind that grows where your heart delights in him and delights in what he delights in. Verse 2 continues. I knew that you were gracious and compassionate, God. How dare you, God? Slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. How awful, right? Verse 3. Now, Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. 
And I love this, verse 4. But the Lord replied, is it right for you to be angry? God's saying, really, Jonah? Really? Jonah's disease is twofold. First, Jonah is an idolater. He's an idolater. We said that Jonah 2 verse 8 is the, the theme verse, the key verse in all of Jonah. Those who cling to worthless idols turn away from the Lord. They forfeit the grace that could be theirs. Jonah's idol is that he loves his racial identity. He loves his status as a respected leader in a prosperous nation. And the Ninevites threaten that, and so he hates them because they threaten to take that away. Now, you still may struggle with seeing Jonah as an idolater because you're you're saying, listen, I don't see him bowing down to these golden statues, so let me just kind of review what idolatry is. Idolatry is two things. One, idolatry is when you build your identity on something besides God. It's when you build your identity on something besides God. All of us have an identity. It's something that defines us. It's this internal dialogue where we tell ourselves, I have worth because fill in the blank. I have worth because I'm a good mom, because I have a good job, because I'm a good athlete, because I'm successful. As I look back at my own life, I can see there's certain stages in my life where I have found my identity in different things. If I go back to when I was in junior high, it was all about finding my identity through athletics and sports because nobody wants to be the the kid pick last in kickball, right? And then as I get into high school, it's about finding my identity through, through academics and through achieving success in school. And then once you, once you become an adult and you get out on your own, it's about achieving professional success. See, when you find your identity on anything other than how God feels about you, you're an idolater. Your identity is what the most important person in your life thinks about you. And when your identity is built on anything other than God's love and God's acceptance in your life, then you become fearful and you become hateful like Jonah. Because there's always something about you that you think makes you worthy, and anybody that threatens that about you, you resent them, you hate them. So for example, if if I'm just being transparent, I can tell you that I have been jealous of people who do the same things that I do, but they seem to get more recognition for it. And again, to be honest, there are times where where there's been this sense of of joy or pleasure in seeing those people struggle or fail. Not because I'm necessarily a vengeful person, but because there have been times where I found my worth in being recognized. And when there are other people who who seem to be taking that from me, the, the, the sin sits in. In ministry, I can just tell you, it's very easy to find your worth based on the stat sheet on Monday. Right? A lot of people on church on Sunday, offerings were good, you're feeling great. Man, if it was a low Sunday, low offering, low people, man, I'm just a, a pile on the floor, you might as well just pick me up with the spatula, right? Other signs that your identity is built on something other than God could be unforgiveness. Where you have unforgiveness towards people who have hurt you or people who have threatened you in those areas. It could be self-pity. You have this self-pity that people don't recognize you. Maybe you think, man, my kids don't recognize the sacrifices that I have made for them. And you see all of these in Jonah. Secondly, idolatry is when you desire something more than God. You desire something more than God. It's when I find more happiness 
and being successful in my career than I do in knowing and delighting in God. I find more, more happiness in, in, the, in the dream of being happily married. For Jonah, he finds more delight in the prosperity of Israel and the destruction of his enemies than he does in knowing and delighting in the Lord. And if you remember a couple weeks ago, I gave you several questions to try to get at this. What is it that you are most terrified of losing? What drives you? What's the one thing that, that you think makes life worth living? The, the one thing that if it was taken away from you, you would be crushed. The symptoms of the disease of idolatry are what you see in Jonah's life here in chapter 4. Worry and anger and jealousy and hate and unforgiveness. Now believe it or not, these emotions are precious. Do you want to know why? Because they help you see into your heart. I, I compared them to smoke from a fire that you can trace back to the source. L listen, the fact is, is I don't like smoke in my house, but if it lets me know where a fire is, so, so that I can, I can protect my family and, and get them safe before, before the fire burns them, then I'm grateful for it. And so we have to pay attention to these emotions because emotions are indicators. See, the problem is not worry, it's not anger, it's not jealousy and hate. The problem is what produces those things. And what produces those things is idolatry because idolatry is the essence of sin. You might want to write this down. Idols are things we derive pleasure from more than God, things we seek refuge in more than God. Idols are things we derive pleasure from more than God, things we seek refuge in more than God. So part one of Jonah's disease is that he's an idolater. Part two is that Jonah is ignorant. Jonah is ignorant of the grace that God has towards him. Chapter four, verse two, Jonah says, I knew that you were a God who was compassionate, and he's resentful of it. Now, if Jonah is going to bring up the compassion of God, he should probably be grateful, because what character in this story has received and been shown more compassion than anyone else? It's Jonah. But Jonah's resentful because he doesn't see himself in the category of those who need great grace. The fact is, if you see yourself as a basically worthy person, you think that, that God owes you good things, then, then grace is going to be shocking to you, and generosity will not come naturally. You get resentful when, when God seems to be blessing other people in ways that, that they don't deserve. And then when God commands you to be generous towards others, you resist it. You may never, never say it out loud, but you say, wait, wait, God, I, I, I earned what I have. I, I deserved it. But listen, when you see yourself as a recipient of great grace, then God's compassion becomes his most precious attribute to you, and you become compassionate towards others. So, so which of these is truer for you? When you see God bless someone else that, that you see is unworthy, you see someone else get a blessing that, that you would like to have, how do you react? What's your knee-jerk reaction? Are you like, God, why them? Why, why do they get the blessing? Why are they getting married before I am? Why are they getting the honor? Why are they getting the recognition? If that's your reaction, you're demonstrating at that moment how out of touch you are with God's grace. How generous are you with your money? If not very much, you probably don't think Jesus had to give that much to save you. 
If, if you give a tithe and you think, well, that basically does it, I've, I've checked it off the list, I'm not sure you truly understand salvation. Jesus didn't tithe His blood for you. He poured it all out. Listen, God, God has blessed us in, in, in many ways, and, and, and we want to bless each other. We want to bless our families, but, but also we want to bless others because we've received great mercy in Christ. If you're not forgiving with your spouse or the people around you, you probably don't understand grace. I, I can share with you in, in my own marriage how especially early on, I had a hard time forgiving my wife because I didn't see myself in the company of the guilty. And, and she would tell you that, that there were years where she would kind of put me up on a pedestal. And, and I'll just tell you, that, that's a bad recipe. Because anytime you put someone else in a position that only belongs to God, what will inevitably happen is that person will fail you. They will let you down. They will disappoint you without fail. But it wasn't until I started to see myself as a sinner, first against God and secondly against my wife, that I became much more forgiving. I was not a perfect person who needed no grace. No, I was a person who had been a recipient of great grace, an extremely undeserving person. And so now as somebody who has received God's grace, giving grace to my wife seemed like no big deal at all. It came much more naturally. You see, forgiveness problems in my marriage were gospel problems. And because I didn't understand the grace of God, I didn't extend it to other people. See, people who are recipients of great grace become dispensers of great grace. Now, here's the thing with Jonah. Honestly, Jonah probably saw his sin and Nineveh's sin in two completely different categories. Jonah says, well, look, look, at, look at the Ninevites. They're adulterers. They're cruel. They worship idols. They skin people alive. Jonah's saying, I, I don't do that. But what had Jonah done? Jonah had looked directly at God and said, no. Can I just ask, is there any greater sin than that one? In fact, the original sin, the, the sin that damned the human race was what? It was saying no to God. It was Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden eating from the forbidden tree. It wasn't like the tree in and of itself was that bad. It was saying no to God, direct rebellion, blasphemy. That sin led to all the pain and suffering and corruption that came into the world. It was that sin that condemned the human race to hell. And that's a sin that, that all of us, including religious people, have committed. You may be sitting there thinking, man, I haven't flaunted my sin. I haven't lived this, this flashy, sinful life like the Kardashians or some other celebrity couple. But in many ways, listen, your sin is worse. Because a lot of people do it out of ignorance, but you did it and you, did, you knew God. And you still defied him. It's like we learned in, in the first week of, of this study. You're never further from God than when you're close to him and you say no. Jonah's sin was blasphemy of the highest order, but Jonah didn't see that and so he doesn't get grace. You might want to write this down. A spirit of unforgiveness and a lack of generosity is the indication that you're out of touch with the grace of God in your own life. A spirit of unforgiveness and a lack of generosity is the indication that you're out of touch with the grace of God in your own life. This is Jonah's disease. Idolatry and ignorance. And by the way, all of this has happened after he agreed to do God's will. By the time we get to Jonah chapter 4, God, or Jonah is obeying God. 
He's no longer directly defiant. And I would submit to you that this is the picture of most religious people. Religious people, they're like, well, I I don't want to go to hell. I don't want to end up in the belly of a whale, so I'll obey God. I'll do what he says. But that doesn't mean that you've come to delight in God or become forgiving like him. Delight in God and having a forgiving, loving, God-like heart cannot be produced by fear or being in the belly of a whale. It can only be produced by grace. And that's why this messianic reading of Jonah is so important. Where we read Jonah and we see that Jesus is the true and greater Jonah. We see that, that Jesus paid the penalty for us. That Jesus went into the belly of the whale because of our disobedience. Like I've said, God is not just after obedience. He's after a whole new kind of obedience. An obedience that grows from the passions of the heart. There's more. Look at verse 5. It says, Jonah had gone out and sat down at a place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter, sat in its shade, and waited to see what would happen to the city. Man, Jonah's hoping. He's hoping that that repentance wears off and that God strikes them with a, with a lightning bolt from the sky and destroys them all. There is nothing that would have made Jonah happier. Do you have someone like that in your life? Verse 6, then the Lord God provided a leafy plant and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the plant. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm which chewed the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die and said, it would be better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? It is, he said. And I'm so angry, I wish I were dead. Now, this is the second time that God has asked Jonah if he has a right to be angry. The first time was in verse 4, and he had no response. This time, he asked, and Jonah says, you're darn right I've got a right to be angry. You better believe I do. Verse 10, but the Lord said, you have been concerned about this plant, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. And should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left hand, and also many animals? God's saying, Jonah, you're torn up about a plant. You're upset about a plant, Jonah, a plant. But, But these are people. Nineveh is filled with people, people just like you. In fact, the 120,000 who don't know their right hand from their left hand, they're not talking about people who are ambidextrous. A lot of scholars say that it's referring to children. St. Jonah, how can you look at such a massive destruction of life? Sinful people, sure, but people just like you, and even children. Children who are as precious to me as your children are to you. How can you look at them with no emotion, with no passion? So how does Jonah end? What's Jonah's response? Look there at the next verse. Look at verse 12. What's it say? There is no next verse. That's it. That's the end. It ends on a cliffhanger. It ends with a question because the book is a question for religious people like Jonah. And the question is, do you care? Do you care more for perishing people than you do your stuff? 
Stuff that is temporary, like a plant, and in light of eternity, pretty meaningless. It's a question for you. What do you care most about? What are you most upset about? The tears that you shed in the past year, what were they about? How much grief does the fate of lost people bring to you? Romans chapter 9, the Apostle Paul is, is, is reflecting on the fate of people who don't know Christ, and he says, I'm in anguish every day. You see, for, for, for Jonah, the Ninevites were, were merely a concept, a, a, a big enemy city. He didn't see them as people, but God saw them as individuals. That's why he points out the 120,000 people, children. Did you know that there are 2.2 billion people in our world who have yet to be warned of Jesus? Individuals who are made in the image of God just like you. People who experience pain and sadness and grief and loneliness and fear just like you. People who love your children just as much as you love your children. People who the prospect of going to hell would be just as much a tragedy for them as it would be for you. Do you realize that and do you care? How can we not care? How can we not weep? Why do we have so much passion for things that don't matter at all and so little passion for the things that actually do? We're upset about a plant, a plant, and there's 2.2 billion people who've never heard the name of Jesus. Not too long ago, I was sitting in an airport. We were sitting in these, these rows getting ready to get onto the, to the plane, and there were two people sitting behind me, and I, I could hear their conversation. And one of them was a, was a man who was just getting ready to retire. And so he was sharing about all his plans. So I'm so excited. We've got all these places that we're going to travel to, and, and I'm a big car collector, and so I'm going to start collecting these cars and putting them in car shows, and it's going to be, it's, I'm, I'm so looking forward to it. And the other guy said, well, I mean, it seems like you got it all mapped out. And the guy replied, he said, you know, I worked for over 40 years. Isn't this why we work, to get to do what we want to do? And I just thought to myself, what a tragedy. What, 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 a, what, a, what, what a tragedy. Listen, I, I'm not saying that, that when you retire that all of you need to be missionaries, although some of you probably do. But what I am saying is that as we get older, and as the reality that, that we could be with Jesus at any moment, as that becomes clear, as that becomes more pressing on our hearts, that should cause us to, to be more involved in the mission of God, more passionate about reaching people. Our retirement years should be, should be our most productive years in the kingdom. We're more on fire for, for, for Jesus and His plan to reach people than, than we've ever been in our entire lives. There's one more thing that I want to point out in the book of Jonah. The book of Jonah is a literary masterpiece. The book is full of these literary devices. And one of them is the repetition of the word great. Now, in Hebrew, it's the same word, but in our English versions, it gets translated into a few different words. But as I show you this, I'm going to, I'm going to translate these as great every time. Check this out. Chapter 1, verse 2, go to the great city of Nineveh. Chapter 1, verse 4, then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea, and such a great storm arose. Chapter 1, verse 10, this greatly terrified the men. 
Chapter 1, verse 16, at this the men greatly feared the Lord. Chapter 1, verse 17, the Lord provided a great fish to swallow Jonah. Chapter 3, verse 2, go to the great city of Nineveh. Chapter 3, verse 3, now Nineveh was a very great city. Chapter 3, verse 5, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. Chapter 4, verse 1, but to Jonah this seemed greatly wrong, and he became angry. Chapter 4, verse 6, Jonah was very, greatly happy about the plan. In chapter 4, verse 11, and should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people? The whole point of this literary device is to show you the greatness of God's mission. Nineveh's wickedness is great, God's grace is greater. Jonah's hatred of the Ninevites is great, God's compassion is greater. Have you felt the greatness and the weightiness of this mission? It's been said that the English, the famous English missionary to China, Hudson Taylor, could sometimes barely stand to be in a church in England and hear the praises of, of a thousand English people sing to God when there were untold millions of Chinese who had never even heard the name of Jesus. And this is what Hudson Taylor said. Would that God make hell so real to us that we cannot rest? Is your life marked by a heaviness, by a participation in that greatness? Years ago, a small four foot six single woman named Lottie Moon went to go serve as a missionary in China. She died 127 years ago in China of starvation. She went to China as a young single woman. She wanted to be married. She, she wanted to find a spouse, but, but she knew that this is what God had called her to. As I read through her biography and learned more about her life, I, my heart welled up for her when, when she wrote, I pray that no missionary will ever be as lonely as I have been. But Lottie Moon gave her undying devotion to the Chinese for more than 30 years. When most missionaries fled China during the China-Japan War, she stayed where she was. When, when U.S. government officials told all, all U.S. citizens to, to flee to safe haven, she said, oh no, don't say that you want me to return. Nothing can make me return. China is my home. It is my joy and my delight. For years and years, she, she struggled to, to get people in China to listen to her. She was a foreigner who they didn't give much attention to. But a turning point in her ministry came one day when a Chinese pastor of a church that she was involved in was captured and tortured. She found the place where he was being held, and she rushed in there. And what she, what she appeared upon was, was a horrific sight. The Chinese pastor had been beaten black and blue. It was so gruesome that, that, that his scalp was, was barely hanging onto her onto his head, and, and she ran, and, and she inserted herself right between the guard and this Chinese pastor. And she said, stop, please, for the love of God, stop. Beat me instead. And, and this, this Chinese guard said, said, get out of here, devil woman. Get, get away from here. And she, said, and she just stood her ground, and witnesses say that this peaceful look came upon her in this very gentle smile. And, and the guard just did not know what to do. He was shaking, and, and, and after about 30 seconds or so, he dropped his sword, and he walked away. 
Lottie Moon as, as quickly as she could. She, she helped get this, this Chinese pastor down, and, and she took him a couple villages over to the nearest hospital where she sat by his side while he recovered. And eventually, she, she helped nurse him back to health. And several weeks later, when they went back to the city, they, they found that this little church had exploded and multiplied in size. There were new believers everywhere. See, what happened was these people were overwhelmed that this strange little white woman would give her life for a Chinese man. And this opened their hearts to the message of the sacrifice of Jesus, who had given away everything he had so that they could be saved. In 1911, there was a great famine who swept, that swept through a portion of China where she lived. And again, she refused to leave. During that time, she wrote to American pastors, and she said, please, Will you please give something to help your brothers and sisters in China? Lottie Moon literally gave away all of her food to the point where she died of starvation. They say she weighed only 50 pounds at her death. Shortly before she died, there was a Chinese nurse that was with her. She said that that Lottie Moon would sing that old song that most of us knew ever since we were a child, Jesus Loves Me. Her voice was faint. She sang the song and then it followed. But she would clasp her hands together and then unclasp them in a form of a typical Chinese greeting. She would clasp her hands together and then she would say the name of one of her, one of her friends who had already gone to be with the Lord. She would do this over and over until finally she clasped her hands together and there was no name. And the nurse who was with her said that that's the moment that she believes that, that she saw Jesus. And then she died. Lottie Moon, her whole life, speaks of the weightiness of our mission. It's not just her mission, it's our mission. She realized that the mission was worth her life. Jesus was worth any sacrifice. He was better than a husband, better than food, better than life. Jesus was worth following to the ends of the earth. So again, Jonah ends with a question. Does Jonah ever get it? I'd like to think that Jonah does because most scholars believe Jonah is the one who wrote this. And so he's the one posing the question, which means that, that he gets it. But it's left as a question because it's a question for you and me. Do we get it? Are you engaged, heart and soul, in the mission of God? You see, we all have a choice. We can either be part of the radical, self-sacrificial mission of Jesus, or we can walk, into, walk in disobedience. There is no middle ground. We like to think that there is. We like to think that, you know, I, I can over here, I can obey God in this area. Sure, I, I can volunteer, I, I can tithe, but I'm not going to do anything radical or crazy. I'm not going to pour my life out in mission. Church, that category doesn't exist. Jesus said that to follow him, you must take up your cross, which means you got to pour your life out. That's not an instruction for just a few special few. That's for everyone. It blows my mind how believers are so often willing to take portions of the Bible that they like and apply them to their, themselves, and just ignore other parts. So, so we get to verses that we really like, right? We get to 1 Peter 5, 7, cast your cares on me. 
We say, yeah, man, I'm, I'm a mom of three. My life is crazy. Yeah, that's my verse. But then we come and, and we read, take up your cross and follow me and go and, and, and preach the gospel to the world. We say, that, that's not for me. That, that, that's a verse for college students with no money. Or we come to a verse and we say, Jesus says, come to me all who are weary and burdened and I will give you rest. We say, yes, that's my verse. And then we see Acts 1.8, but you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. We say, no, that, that's not for me. That one's for someone else. By what right do we take hold of the comforts of Christ and not his commands? Listen to me very clearly. You are either an active part of going and sending or you're disobedient. There is no middle ground. And if you're not living this way, is it possible, I'm just asking, is it possible that you are completely out of touch with the grace of God in your own life? Or maybe for some of you, you don't truly trust the gospel, you don't believe the gospel. If that's you, we want to give you an opportunity to respond today and, and, and accept the love and acceptance that comes to you, no matter what you've done. But if you do understand the gospel and you just don't care, then maybe this is where we should pray. Would you bow your heads with me? Lord, over the last four weeks, we have seen in the book of Jonah, it's like looking in a mirror because we see ourselves. We can see so often where we're like Jonah, where we can see hurting, dying, lost people, and we just don't care. God, I pray that as we experience more and more of your grace of what you have done for us in Jesus, that that would change our hearts. That we would have a heart like yours, a heart that grows, a heart that's marked by forgiveness, a heart that's marked by generosity, a heart that's marked by love. God, if there's anyone here today who's never accepted that love that you offer in Jesus Christ, they've never asked for forgiveness of their sins, They've never accepted Jesus as, as the Lord and Savior of their life. They've never identified themselves in, in Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection through the waters of baptism. I pray that today would be that day. But they wouldn't let another day pass without grabbing hold of what Jesus has done for them. And God, for those of us who understand grace, It's not affecting us. God, I pray that that would change. That we would plunge ourselves deeper and deeper into the gospel. And we would say, God, change me so that I can love like you. God, this is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.